I'm excited to talk about ABBA today. You mean ABBA? Yes, ABBA. No, ABBA. I thought it was ABBA. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, human recommendation algorithm, Andy Bowman, and with me are my co-host, Tessa Suela. Hello. And Dr. Sam Morris. Hello. This week, Sam thanks all the dancing queens and the super troopers for the music. Tessa visits Metropolis. No, no, not that Metropolis. And I finally get a Tighten off my freaking backlog. Right? Right? Okay. Sam, you you did Mamma Mia. This is a movie based on a Swedish pop group, or is it a musical based on the music of the Swedish pop group? Mamma Mia is a 2008 movie. It's based on a jukebox musical by British playwright Katherine Johnson. Now, what's a jukebox musical? That's my first question. Yeah, I I didn't... This is a new term for me. A jukebox musical, think Glee. A musical with already existing pop or rock and roll songs. Alanis Morissette has had a musical recently developed off of Jagged Little Pill. There's Rock of Ages. There's any number of... They've skyrocketed in popularity over the last 20 or so years. This is maybe one of the... I don't want to say it's one of the first ones, but it's one of the first bigger name ones. And then it was converted into the film in 2008 and then directed by Philida Lloyd. But before we talk about that, we need to stop for a moment and talk a little bit about Swedish pop music. Uh, What's there to talk about Swedish pop music? There is so much to talk about Swedish pop music. But before we do that, I have to tell you a little bit about my weird family. Uh Uh-oh. I've written about this a little bit back on The Pop Culturist, how my parents have very different musical tastes. I grew up... In the 80s, my mom was very much like a adult contemporary pop, mid-80s, late 70s person, queen, wham, hollow notes, that kind of stuff. My dad was stuck in the early 60s. Did it come out before the Beatles grew their hair out, but after Elvis? That was his sweet spot. Groups like The Association, the Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and then the Beatles really up to A Hard Day's Night. Except for the following exceptions. Fleetwood Mac, ABBA, The Bengals. That was his thing. So like growing up, I knew he liked ABBA. I had no interest in ABBA whatsoever. But then Roxette happened in the late 80s. And that was a band we all liked together at the same time. It was the convergence of all of our musical tastes. Swedish pop is a real thing. Okay, it's a it's a big, big deal. There's Roxette, there's Ace of Bass, there's the Cardigans, Robin, uh, Leaky Lee, and my personal favorite, Tove Lo, who had my single favorite song of the 2010s. You also get Europe, The Final Countdown, Max Martin, who, if you listen to any American pop music, he's produced a song. You have Icona Pop, you have Mike Snow. Swedish pop music is huge. And you can really say that as far as a worldwide phenomenon, it really kicked off 
1974, when ABBA was Sweden's first Eurovision Song Contest winner. Okay, so one of the things I took from that entire thing was that your dad liked the Weezer single, Buddy Holly. Just so. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about ABBA. So just to put this controversy to rest, if you listen to the band or the group talking about themselves to an English audience, you will hear ABBA. However, it is universally recognized that ABBA, 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 pretty much anything that vaguely recognizes an A sound in some language with two Bs in the middle is a relevant pronunciation. As I said, I really had no interest in ABBA growing up. I was trying to explain it to Tessa the other day when we were watching the film. To me, they just don't get there in terms of hooks, in terms of, you know, really awesome key changes in a bridge. And you have to have these things to make a good pop song, in my opinion. Dancing Queen is the exception. It is a great song. It is perhaps one of the best pop songs How, wherever you go, whatever genre you listen to. Songs like Waterloo and Fernando, I mean, they're great, but they just don't do it for me. So I've always wanted to figure out an entry point into ABBA, but I haven't been able to. But if you like Fleetwood Mac, I really feel like you should like ABBA for this fact alone. ABBA is two married couples. I'm going to try it. Bjorn Ulveus and Agnieta Feltskug, they were married, and Benny Anderson and Annie Fried Lingstad, who is now known as Princess Annie Fried, Dowager Countess of Pleun, and that's true, were married to each other, but both couples divorced during the history of the band. So it's a real thing. It's, it's interesting. I just wish I liked them more. And so one of the reasons I watched this movie was to like ABBA more. Sam, I think you'd be interested in this fact, okay? ABBA is actually an acronym for All Bangin' Bops Around, right? So every one of their songs is a bangin' bop. I think this is probably a good place to point out that the single best episode of DC's Legends of Tomorrow is the yet-to-be-produced episode, so far as we know. Maybe they've done it. The yet-to-be-produced episode in which we get to see the disco ABBA thing. That's been teased multiple times. I, I'm waiting for it. Okay, okay. so are, are you ready to talk about the movie? Because you watched a movie, not a band. Yes. All right, let's go. He's doing this to pay you back for the Arctic Monkeys the other week, Andy. That's okay. The original Mamma Mia is a musical. There was involvement on some level from three out of the four members of the group. Uh, Bjorn and Benny, which were the primary songwriters, Gave their music, obviously, to Katherine Johnson and those involved. Benny Anderson had additional musical involvement. So new music was written for it by one of the original members of ABBA. Wait, then it's not a jukebox musical, is it? Yes, it is. I think it's scoring and arrangement. I don't know that we're talking about technically new songs okay. for the most part. Uh, Annie Freed had financial involvement, I guess, in her role as a dowager countess. Again, that's a true story, apparently. The film is also co-produced by everyone's favorite mom and dad, Rita and Tom. That is Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks. I went into this for ABBA. I also went into it for Amanda Seyfried. But if you've seen this movie, you know it's actually really about Meryl Streep. The basic plot of the movie, Meryl Streep plays a woman named Donna, who's the owner 
of the Villa Donna Hotel on a fictional Greek island. And she has a daughter named Sophie who's about to get married and she doesn't know who her dad is. But she found a journal and it could be one of three men. Three men played by James Bond, Mr. Darcy, and the weird physicist from Thor. Kenneth Branagh? Not the director, the physicist. The Skarsgård. That's right. What, which Bond? Because Daniel Craig's kind of young. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan. This movie is just stacked with, with people. Um, Howard Stark, the one not a slattery, Dominic Cooper, plays the fiancé. Julie Walters and Christine Baranski are Meryl Streep's character's best friends. And by the way, if you're saying to yourself, who's Christine Baranski? Well, if you've watched CBS in the last decade, you will recognize her as one of the main characters in The Good Wife or Leonard's mother from The Big Bang Theory. So you've got all of these people that you know. You have all of these songs that some of you may know and love. And the question is, is it any good? So, is it? Is it any good? I don't know, Tessa. Is it any good? This is your monkey. Why are you making me trying to do your monkey? I did my own homework this week. All right. So, for the record, Tessa will not be asking me if Metropolis is any good. The question isn't, is the movie any good? The question is, to paraphrase from Face Off, are we having any fun? And fun was definitely had. Fun was definitely had by everybody, including Pierce Brosnan, who apparently cannot sing. But everybody was having a good time. I had a good time. Tessa had a good time. I think. She won't tell us. But I think it was great fun. I, I think that the, the plot is silly. The, the breaking into song is just shredded as a concept in the best possible way. The songs really fit what's, what's happening in the, the sequence at the end. In the end credits, they just completely break character. It's not these actors playing characters singing ABBA in costume. It's just these actors putting on 70s disco style and like singing ABBA. It's, it's great. It's clearly this was a bunch of people who wanted to have a good time and they had a good time. And then 10 years later, they made a sequel. The only thing I will say about this movie is that I didn't know a movie existed in which someone could upstage Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep is upstaged in this movie by Christine Baranski. I am standing by that as my assessment. It's pretty fan. Her, her number on the beach is very fantastic. I did mention earlier that, that I was into this film for Amanda Seyfried. And I have to say, there, there wasn't as much of a performance by her as I was hoping for. So Mank wasn't it. This wasn't it. I think she's going to have like a big role one of these days. But that's just a prediction because I don't think it's happened yet. All right. Well, I'm just going to crib uh, what Stephen Colbert said about Mamma Mia on its opening weekend. His response was, the Dark Knight may steal the box office, but Mamma Mia stole my heart. You cannot bring your cynicism to this movie and enjoy it. You must leave that at the door. I I think that's the key to really enjoying this movie. That and bringing your queerness with you. Yes. You yes, can't just this nod is true. That. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's not a visual medium, despite how many times we might say that. <laughs> who would you recommend this to? Like, who should watch this? You know, unfortunately, I think that anyone I would recommend this to has probably already seen it. Like, I'm kind of a late adopter here. 
this is something that I should have seen a long time ago, to be perfectly honest. Between the history, my personal history with ABBA, how much I love Swedish pop, how much I like this concept, this particular kind of musical. Yeah, as Tessa would say here, I'm just going to say it for her. For somebody who doesn't like musicals, I sure seem to like musicals. So I don't know what my excuse is, but I'm glad to have seen it. And like I said, I seriously look forward to the sequel. And I also look forward to haunting all of you the next two weeks by talking about more music. So good times. All right. Well, let's get to this week's discussion. And I can sum up this week's discussion with two words. Oscar snubs. What do you guys think was should have been nominated for an Oscar, but was not? My answer will surprise no one because I believe I've talked about it before on this podcast and on Twitter. But I believe The Five Bloods, which features Chadwick Boseman and Dilroy Lindo, was terribly, terribly snubbed. It was one of the best things that I saw last year. Uh, it came out early 2020, which is probably why it didn't get nominated. I think people forgot about it. But it was a fantastic movie. It is definitely Spike Lee's best movie, in my opinion. I know that's a controversial statement, but Delroy Lindo, who was in The Good Fight with Christine Baranski, we're just going to talk about Christine Baranski all episode and next episode, he is amazing in it, and he deserved he deserves a supporting actor nod for that particular film. So I think he was snubbed. I think The Five Bloods is snubbed. That's not a hot take. It's just a fact. Sam, do you have any any snubs that you think... Uh... We're, we're, we're done. I mean, I feel like you want me to say that Tenet was snubbed. I, I'd really, I really don't. I don't want that put out in the world. And it was nominated for some things. Well, yeah, but it wasn't really nominated for writing or directing or best picture or acting. And I'm not really sure that the Razzies have, an- have announced their nominations yet. So I don't know that we can really call that a snub yet. I... I'm going to kick myself for not remembering something other than Defy Bloods, which should certainly have been nominated. One thing that I can say is that I think that a lot of us were kind of hoping that the weirdness of this year's award cycle would put some attention on some films that typically wouldn't get attention. I'm not saying that Palm Springs, for example, should have had a Best Picture nomination. I'm not going to say that. Would it have hurt my feelings if it had? No, absolutely not. But it feels like that film was too clever in a few different ways to be completely ignored in the way that it was. We also talked about the fact that early films in the year might get some attention, but as usual, not only did Defy Bloods drop off the radar, but Emma, which I'm not convinced I really liked, or Invisible Man, which I did like. And I know you did too, Andy, and I know Tessa did as well. Those movies didn't get the attention that they should have, I think. And to be perfectly honest, I mean, Margot Robbie could have been shown some love too. For what? For just owning that character of Harley Quinn. It's such a fun character. Oh, that's right. That's right. That movie did come out. Yeah, that was the last movie that we saw in the theater. Yeah, and Elizabeth, I would echo the Invisible Man thing. Elizabeth Moss at least should have gotten an acting nod, I think. Boy, I'm, I'm so happy you guys mentioned both of my snubs at the last minute there when Sam was, uh, was running up his, his list of snubs. You're welcome. Uh, I do think that, uh, that Palm Springs should have gotten a nomination. I at least think for writing, 
maybe for cinematography or directing. Um, it's a good take on an old concept that's been done before, and it's a good, funny take to it. That's the thing. Like, Invisible Man has one strike, which is that it's genre. Palm Springs has two strikes. It's comedy and genre. I also would have truly loved uh, my, my Dark Horse, the thing that should have been nominated but was not the script for Bill and Ted. Well, you won't get any complaint from me. But I, I, I was thinking that it would be fun for us to nominate our own little awards and have some polls. Now, keep in mind, I haven't talked to my co-hosts about doing this. They don't know that I was going to do this. And this is also making work for Tessa. So I think we should just come up with a few movies, one each, that we would like to nominate for just best picture, best monkey. As in, if you haven't watched it, it is now a monkey, dear listener, and it is on your backlog. Does it have to be a film from last year? Yes. Okay. So Oscar rules. Okay. Does it have to have been screened in a theater for three consecutive weekends in at least two major media markets, not limited to, but probably New York City and Los Angeles? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Does it have to have a de-aged De Niro in it? That was good. That's what I was going to say. That was was good. Oh. Okay. (laughs) Does it... Does it have to be from Focus Features? Oh, gosh. The co-production that involves Channel 4 from Britain. I can't remember what that one is. Or Searchlight, which is formerly Fox Searchlight. Does it have to come from a mid-major, quote-unquote, indie production company? You know what? Yes, it has to. It must. So good luck figuring that out. You made the rule. We're going to follow that now. Well, it's it super be... easy. It's super easy. Is it a major production where the producers want it to be nominated for an Oscar? If so, it's routed through one of those people. I know your game. I mean, again, not surprising. I'm going to nominate The Five Bloods. Please see that movie. It's on Netflix. Can I also nominate The Five Bloods? No. It's, ar- it's already been nominated this is how Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya end up competing. This is, this is wrong. What's your movie? Palm Springs. I nominate Palm Springs. I nominate Sonic the Hedgehog. All right. A movie I have not seen yet. So you're ma- you nominated your own monkey. Yeah, I did. This is like 5D chess. Is Sonic the Hedgehog the best Jim Carrey movie? I don't know. Let's find out. Together. As we watch Sonic the Hedgehog right now. All right, guys, go ahead and pull up Sonic the Hedgehog. We're going to watch it together right now. Leave the recording stream on. I don't have a Sega Genesis. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) I hate you so much. So earlier in the episode, I promised that I will not give my opinion on the film that Tessa watched this week, but I'm saving something. So Tessa, tell us about what you watched this week. This week on Tessa Had to Watch Something for her dissertation. No, uh, this is a film I'd been wanting to watch for years and years and years, but never could quite get around to it. Plus, it was really hard for a while to pin down exactly what version of the film I wanted to watch. So we'll talk about that here in a bit. But I watched 1927 silent film Metropolis. As I recall, this is a film that just about everybody seems to allude to, reference to, in some form or fashion. 
But am I correct? It's it's based on a concept in which Madonna is like the owner of a factory or is married to the owner of a factory and she's like lusting after all the men and there's like a big cat. Am I correct? No, that's the music video for Express Yourself. Oh, well, it's still a good video. Is it the city that Superman protects from Lex Luthor? No, this is, this actually, I believe, predates Superman. Wait, what year did Superman first appear in comics? Sometime in the 20s. Okay, it it either is simultaneously or slightly precedes Superman. And remember, if we are wrong, our correction department is at Portly Island Boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ariel uh, will, will, will correct us on our comic book history. But yeah, it is not the, the city that Superman defends. I was waiting for him to appear in this movie. He did not, in fact, appear. There's a tangent here about golems that, that cross-references the adventures of Cavalier and Clay and... German things around the 20s, but I'm not going to go there. Instead, why don't you just tell us what Metropolis is really about? Metropolis is a German expressionist film directed by Fritz Lang. It's basically set, I mean, most of Metropolis is the aesthetic. Uh, So it's set in a very highly stylized dystopian city where rich capitalists live in beautiful houses and the poor working class live below ground and only exist to continue working on machines in vague, almost dance-like ways that make the city run. So it, it is very much like a upstairs-downstairs, but science fiction. Like I said, this is 1927, so this is one of the first films that did this, even though it's now considered kind of an old concept. But the basic plot of the film is that Freder, who's the son of the city architect, so he's like a super rich kid, one day discovers that his lazy, well-to-do lifestyle is being supported by the exploitation of other people. He didn't know this for most of his life, apparently. But he finds this out because of Maria, who is a working-class prophet, who foresees the arrival of a mediator who will come to further the communication between the rich and the poor and make everything better again. And there's a lot of stuff maybe about the Tower of Babel. Uh, There's also a, a, a subplot line. Uh, well, it's not really a subplot line. It's just another plot line um, about Rotwang, the evil inventor, which Rotwang, if your parents named you Rotwang, you're going to be an <laughs> evil inventor. I mean, like, I don't, I mean, they had his whole career path planned out for him when they named him. Yeah. And I mean, something Top did 10 rot. names that my parents thought of. Well, something did rot and fall off, but it was not his Wang. <laughs> but he's an evil inventor who's like invented a lot of the machines in the city and He's, like, mourning the death of, like, his love, who was, like, in love with someone else. And so he creates the Machine Man, this android who's basically, like, a human. And because the architect of the city, uh, Joe Fredrickson, Fredder's father, wants to quash this, like, organization of the working class and this, like, uprising that there that is clearly about to happen, he asks Rotwang to disguise the android as... <laughs> get through this summary without laughing he decides to he asks him to he asks him to disguise the android as maria the the leader of the the working class and so you get this brilliant performance by bridget helm who's playing like the good version of maria but then also this evil android version of maria and the only way you can really tell the difference is that evil android maria has a lot more eyeliner on like that's literally the only difference that you can tell and she like you know is obviously more sexualized than the good maria and all of that stuff 
it's an adventure. It is a long movie. It is also a silent movie, but it is considered like this pinnacle of like early, early science fiction and it's influenced so many other things. But that is basically it in a nutshell. I'm sorry I can't explain it better. It's like really difficult to explain without making it sound ridiculous, but I never felt like it was ridiculous while I was watching it. Here's another way to summarize the plot of Metropolis. Eric Trump falls in love with a really hot Antifa girl, and then they kidnap the Antifa girl and duplicate her as RoboCop. Yeah, that that actually is a pretty good pretty good summary. The cinematography is by Carl Freund, who many of you might remember back from our Spooktober discussion of The Mummy. I have no idea how that's the same person because The Mummy is such a terrible film. But this film, like the cinematography steals the show. Like it is so beautiful. The city is clearly like these very intricately designed, stylized models. And there's like just like this breadth of just science fiction imagination. Like this person imagined a future in which this beautiful city existed Obviously, with like all this squalor below, but there are like planes that fly around the city and these like really cool just machines. And it's just it's very beautiful. And I don't know if I've ever actually watched a black and white film in which I didn't notice it was black and white. Like it felt like this film had color, even though it had no color and no no dialogue, no sound. It was just, you know, the soundtrack, the score. So why? And I I always want to watch more silent films that I haven't seen before. But this is a bit of a a bit of a journey. It's a bit of a time commitment. Why should well, why should anyone watch this movie? Well, like I said, it has influenced so much science fiction since then, especially in film, like films like Blade Runner, you can definitely see a lot of parallels between the set design of Blade Runner and this particular film. If you are a fan of Janelle Monet, which is why I watched this film this week, her first couple of albums, The Metropolis Chase Suites, are clearly, clearly influenced by this film, although she takes a very different approach to the Maria character. I would just say if you really like science fiction that makes you think that's very heady and like kind of fever dreamish, but you love like the the imagination and just the reaching that happens as far as science fiction goes, you'll probably appreciate this film. The messaging does fall a little short for me because it kind of stops short of saying like that capitalism is evil and there should be a communist revolution. Basically they're just like, well, we should all talk more, which is not really my favorite, but up until they got to that point, there is a lot of really good philosophical questioning of capitalism as a system and you know looking at how the future of capitalism could be it is very very Aryan and I don't mean that it's Nazis I just mean that like this is a German film and you're going to see a lot of German people and not very many other people so if you're interested in doing something that's a little bit more diverse you might want to skip this one but again it has a huge huge impact on science fiction after it you're going to notice a lot of things and because this happens to me every single time I try to do a famous monkey, Nanetti Okorafor also watched it this week, and she tweeted about it. So, you know, the cool kids are watching it. Fritz Lang as well is, is mm. just a, a big name. I, I am not the expert in Fritz Lang. I can tell you that not too long after Metropolis, he makes M, which is a, a huge film. It also brought to us 
the great character actor Peter Lorre. After Fritz Lang comes to Hollywood, he makes one of my favorite problem movies of all time, which is Fury, which is Spencer Tracy. Later on, he goes to make Rancho Notorious with Marlene Dietrich and Clash by Night with Barbara Stanwyck and little undiscovered indie actress Jim Marilyn Monroe. If this sounds like I'm about to lob you a question about auteur theory, I am. We don't like to talk about auteur theory a lot because it's very problematic, but Fritz Lang had a vision. I believe we watched The Vision. You want to talk about what version you ought to watch? Well, we watched as close to The Vision as you can get anymore. So there are five different versions of this film because the original premiere cut of it is completely lost. Even though Carl Freund made like three copies of it, it has been, it doesn't exist anymore in its original cut. For a long time, you could only watch heavily edited versions of this film because they were missing so many pieces of it. But back in 2010, well, probably a little before 2010, they found a very damaged but unedited version of the film in Argentina. So the complete Metropolis does exist. It is not the complete film, but they have added, they have restored as much of it as possible. And they have added sequences, like they, they've added like title cards for scenes that are missing to explain like what happens during the scene and what scenes are not available anymore. There are some parts of it that where you can tell the film has been damaged um, because they did have to splice it together from several different sources, but it is as complete as you can possibly get unless they find another undamaged copy of it somewhere, but I'm not holding my breath on that one. But it is 148 minutes long, so it is a long film, but it is very, very worth it. It is on Amazon. That is where we watched it, The Complete Metropolis. So if you are looking to watch this film, I recommend that. Just watch this. The set work is amazing. You'll see everything from modernist technological skyscrapers to underground caver caverns to gothic architecture and death is in it. So, you know, good times. All right, Andy. So you did, oh God, you did Attack on Titan. Did you just do another anime again? Yes. <laughs> and yes, I did. What an anime. I've, I saw the first season of this a while ago. So what's Attack on Titan about? And why is now the right time to rip it off your backlog? Okay, so Tessa, I w I, first of all, I was kind of like you. I saw the first season a while ago, at which it aired in 2013. The second season, uh, a much, much shorter 12-episode season instead of the 25-episode first season, aired in 2017. And after that second season, I decided, you know what? I'm not doing this again. I'm not sitting there waiting for the rest of the story to be adapted, maybe wondering if it's going to happen at all. I decided I wasn't going to do that to myself, and after the second season, I stopped. Which means, when they announced last year, Attack on Titan, the final season, that it was going to be airing in December of 2020, and finishing up in March of 2021, I got on board. I said, alright, this is the time, right before that it airs, I'm gonna burn through season three, and finish it up. Well, that's, the, that, that's my situation right here. And Attack on Titan is hard to describe, but what it is, humanity lives in these, uh, I, I would say a mid-1200s German-style 
city, right? A, a medieval, a medieval city that is surrounded by walls, and outside these walls are horrific, horrific humanoid creatures called titans. They look just like humans. Their proportions aren't right. I'm sure you, dear listener, have seen what titans look like. You can laugh at them. They're funny. They're weird. They look like giant babies. But the thing is, titans, what they do is they take people and then they eat them. They eat people. They crunch down on some uh, flaming carl. So who is this even for? Well, that's the thing. Attack on Titan is one of the most popular anime in the world. And before I watched this cruel cosmic joke of a show, it is for a lot of people. I think anyone who likes Game of Thrones will actually like this. The first season is very strange in that it, it builds up this, uh, this world just a little bit, but is really about two or three different encounters with Titans, because at the start of the entire show, the Titans break down the wall. And thus, humanity has to evacuate, because you know what? You can't fight these titans, at least not with normal weapons. This enters the main uh, action uh, portion of this show, which is the omnidirectional device, which is basically two bat grappling hooks, allowing the people fighting titans to swing around real fast, real awesomely. They use two swords to uh, basically chop off the heads of the titans. That's the entire action sequence. It is awesome and fun to watch. This has been another episode of Andy Tries to Convince Sam to Watch an Anime. Seriously, the action sequences are great. After the first season, the show goes to a bit more of a slow burn, and it becomes a political thriller, which is weird to think about, but it somehow manages to do that very well. This has been another episode of Andy Tries to Convince Sam to Watch an Anime. You know, it's weird that you say that because I definitely watched the first season probably back in 2013. It's been a really long time since I've seen the first season. And slow political thriller is not what I would have thought of. I don't know what I think about this show, to be honest with you. But anyway, you told me that there was some kind of cosmic punchline involving finishing the last episode of the final season last night. What was that cosmic punchline? Okay. So I sit down, I'm watching the final episode. I've been watching the final uh, season with my wife every week because we wanted to avoid Twitter spoilers for what is significantly one of the biggest anime out there. We finish the last episode. And remember, I held off because I didn't want cliffhangers. We finish the last episode, cliffhanger ending, credits roll, Attack on Titan, the final season, part two, airs next year. Given that cosmic punchline, do you recommend this show? Everyone should wait until the real final season. And, and keep this was not season four. This was billed as the final season. That's right. Everybody listening, do not reward creators and distributors and studios for creating more content. When they say they're for done, lying to you, you. You, you do not support them unless they're really done. That's right. Hashtag cancel everything. <laughs> That's right. Uh, wow. But it, no more it, it, quarantine for you. <laughs> despite what the first season of the show is, it is a dense show with a wonderful world mythology and uh, political intrigue. Yes, believe it or not, political intrigue 
that is wonderful with a uh, an interesting message about uh, war, what war does to people, and um, it's it's one of those things where don't get attached to many characters because a lot of them are dinner. Yeah, that's the one thing I do remember from the first season. It's that it's very Game of Thrones like in that nobody's really safe. Also, ser- seriously, the the action sequences are insanely well done and it is insanely exciting to see basically human tie fighters flying around a giant kaiju that is what this that is what this show really is in the action it's such a strange show i I can't (laughs) emphasize to you enough how strange this show is i am upset i am reeling from the fact that i was lied to because it's called the final season (laughs) not the final season part one was everyone else upset about this, like, online? Like, was this something you just didn't know, but everybody else knew? Or is everybody else upset about it? I, I avoid Attack on Titan fans because I kind of think they're the worst. But go ahead. Thank you for making statements about me. <laughs> anyway, uh, fans had a, a, a slight doubt when there was a realization that there was a lot of content to cover and maybe not enough episodes to do it in. Didn't stop Game of Thrones. <laughs> I have avoided all like manga, like source material stuff. So I didn't know how much was not covered. And apparently it's 16 episodes worth. Unless there's a part three. Final season, part 76. Well, I mean, they could just cram it all into three episodes and call it a day. One of which is too dark to see. What is that a reference to? That is a reference to be careful what you wish for of Thrones. Anyway, I'm upset, but then again, it was better than the other anime I was watching, The Promised Neverland, which literally ended with a slideshow telling the rest of the story. Andy, why do you put yourself through this every week? Because the story's good, usually. Netflix, if you're listening, and I know you are, can we get a slideshow for Glow? Okay, uh, well, next week, Dr. Sam Morris will give us his scholarly opinion on the music of Blackpink. Now, where can you find us? Where can we find you, Tessa? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Dr. Sam? I'm on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. All right. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. You can find me personally on Twitter at Andy Noted. That's A-N-D-Y-N-O-T-E-D. Let us know things. Let us know uh, your thoughts on what we talked about today. Anything you'd like to see us talk about on the future and anything else pop culture related. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. It can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your backlog.